Our reading this morning is taken in Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to our land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God, the Lord, will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and make his footsteps away. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together as Valerie reads the gospel for us. The gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18 and 25 to 27. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, you, Lord Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Please pray with me. Father, speak peace to us. Speak peace to the land and to all creation. We pray your spirit to reunite earth and heaven and usher in to the world your son's eternal reign of peace. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Forgiveness isn't everything. Uh, forgiveness is not enough on its own. See, if you ever had to forgive or yourself be forgiven, it's already, it already means that something has gone wrong in the relationship. Something's gone wrong. I'm sure forgiveness is an important step to take for reconciliation, but that itself alone won't be enough. 
See, anyone trying to build a bridge already means that there's a gap that you have to deal with. There's that gap, that divide. Wounds, they can heal. They may heal, but it it means that damage has already been done. There was harm. There was injury. See, in today's psalm, the psalmist realized that God's forgiveness alone is not enough. So we just heard that he prays for a lot more than just forgiveness. So if you're able, let's turn to Psalm 85 in your Bibles or your apps. I can grab a pew Bible in front of you. It's in page 601, Psalm 85. Now scholars think that this psalm that was composed sometime when the Jewish people got back to the ancient Palestine after decades in exile all throughout Babylon... Now, this was around the time of uh, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, the the prophets, um, Zechariah, and Haggai. Now, at this point, Solomon's temple is long destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem lay in ruins. Land lay fallow for 70-plus years. See, the Jewish exiles then got back to all of that, and they were just starting to pick up the pieces. This is when, around that time, the psalmist wrote Psalm 85. See, after just getting back in the land, the psalmist naturally starts talking and writing about the land after a long time away from it. The psalmist is fixated on the land because it's one of the central elements of his own people's identity, history, and future. So the psalmist, in verse 1, he starts to pray to God and addresses God by God's legal name, as stated in the covenant. That's the special contract that was ratified on Mount Sinai between God and Israel. That involved, among other things, the promise, the stipulation of land, material blessing. So the psalmist prays in verse 1, Yahweh, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people. Notice he brings up these three things. Land, fortune, forgiveness. Land, Fortune and forgiveness. These three were stipulated in that covenant. See, ages ago, God promised these same things to Abraham. Not because Abraham deserved them, but because God promised them. He promised the same thing to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to all the people of Israel. And many times, many, many times, God contractually obligated himself to keep this promise, to give these three things to a particular people under oath of his own name. And so the psalmist brings these things up, and what he's doing here is two things. He's remembering God's favor in the past. He's remembering. Now, we learned about this posture from Tim last Sunday, of looking back to the past and then looking forward to a future promise. But the second thing that the psalmist is doing here is that he's, as he's remembering the past, he's also bringing up on record as it were, God's legal obligations, as stated in the covenant, as though reminding God like he had forgotten about these things. The psalmist is putting God on the spot. Now, the psalmist, this Psalm 85, talks a lot about land. Nowadays, talks about land, very controversial, right? Took particularly about the land of Israel even in our own context here about indigenous lands. Land is controversial because of how fundamental it is to people's history, their identity, their own prosperity. 
This psalm is obviously not about modern geopolitics. But the psalmist here is affirming the significance of land like we would do today. But here specifically using a particular religious and legal language. The language that he had inherited throughout the centuries. The language of covenant. Language that carried the freight of divine promise. An oath heard from heaven. Passed from family to family. Still echoing in their hearts as they've just returned to this land. And this was a very sore point. It's a very sore point for the psalmist. As he and a bunch of people had just returned from exile. they just gotten out of it. They came to a land that once flowed with milk and honey. That means the fatness and sweetness of the land. And now they're just barely eking out an existence. Out of the rubble. Out of the rubbish. In any case, in verse 1, notice the psalm. Psalmist referred to the land as not my land, not our land. What did he write? Your land, God's land. The psalmist regarded the land as divine bestowal, not as a right, but as a gift. Not owned or possessed, but managed, stewarded. So the psalmist puts God on the spot, puts God to the task by focusing on this particular plot of earth Because the psalmist understood it represented the spatial, physical, material dimension of divine promise. And it looks like God had forgotten about it. Because even though they've returned home, their home, land, was decimated. It was all in shambles. Unturned. Yielding nothing. See, the land here is the theater where the drama between God and His people would unfold wherein the seeds of the forgiveness of sins would first be dispersed, where the initial hints of the reconciling of earth and heaven would be first be dramatized. In the script, the script to this drama, this play, was encapsulated in the laws of Moses. And that so long as the, the uh, Levitical sacrifices were carried out, so long as peop- uh, Israel kept the law, God would keep them rooted, planted in the land, multiply their fortunes in the land, forgive their sins in the land, avail them this exclusive privilege of access to himself, a relationship with God, and then have this visible, manifest presence of God in the ark and in the temple, in the land. And God will slowly make Israel to be the conduit, the channel through which heaven would spill over spill out into all the land. This is about the land. The land was the footing on which the divine promise of heaven come to earth would advance. It's about the future. It's about fortune. It's about the forgiveness of sins. But, as I mentioned earlier, forgiveness was not enough. To be forgiven is not everything. Because some big things, important things are still missing. There was a gap to deal with. The damage has been done. The old wound has started to heal. But there was injury. It's not pretty looking. Again, the communities have returned to the land. but That meant their sins are forgiven. Yes, sure. But their re-entry into the land it was decimated. It was a mess. There was no fortune. There was no future. 
Put it like this, like the Israel and the psalmist, they finally got back on, into the theater, they got back on stage, then they're just brushing off the dust of exile from their bodies. They're, they're about to get to the play to give the drama another go, but the theater's in shambles. The stage, it's rotten wood underneath them. The land is decimated. How are they going to go about doing this thing again with God? Forgiveness wasn't enough. That's why in verse 4, we now hear a prayer. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. It's not enough you forgave us. It's not enough you brought us back here, but for what? Have we returned only to be confronted again of our sins? The sins of our forebears? We've reaped what our ancestors have sown. Temple is gone. Holy city is a dump. Land is unturned, yields nothing. Here's my prayer, restore us. We need restoration. Complete, full, utter restoration. Now, in some ways, we do feel the psalmist here, right? We sympathize right now, given our current situation. We're categorically in far better circumstances than the psalmist. That that doesn't uh, diminish how right now, many of us, probably all of us, feel like we're languishing. We're languishing for so long in the wake and ruin of this pandemic. This is not how we ought to be as church. This is not how we ought to be as family. As we're again enervated by mounting cases, by dominant strain again, how we've long been so constrained by half measures and in-betweens. We've had progress for the 20 months or so, but we're still balancing on this tightrope between what once was, what could it be. We still don't see the other side and Try not to fall into the pit underneath us. No one, no one's supposed to live like this. None of us are supposed to live like this. So we sympathize with the psalmist. We want restoration. We pray for restoration. As we've been going through these psalms this Advent, you may have noticed how these psalms, they lend voice. They lend voice to our mostly inaudible anxieties that are buzzing around over our heads like flies in your living space. We have fears that are simmering in our hearts, and sometimes they foam out of the lid. The psalmist, they carried the same fears. They carried the same sorrows and worries in their own time. See, these psalms, they're, they're the whole community of God throughout the ages who struggled who struggled to believe, who struggled to hope, who struggled to have faith in their own predicament. And they're now here beckoning us today in their hymns of praise, in these songs of ascent, in their cries of lament, these poetry and prayers, they're breaking through the tunnel of time and they're just crashing now into our space in this present moment. They lend us their ancient voices when we have none. They give us their words when ours fail. They offer their own prayers when we could not and would not even pray. Such also are our liturgies, our colics that we pray. These are words that have been penned not by us, but other people. We have them in our mouths. Common prayers and hymns, litanies, sacraments. 
Let's not just cherish them, but put them to use. We overuse them. Put them on shuffle and repeat in our heads. Cross-stitch them into our hearts and memories. They are the equipment for this long journey ahead that we're still on. Let's use them. Let's believe them. Let's wear them out. So as the psalmist looked back at God's past favor, he looks right what's in front of him. He sees the incredible discrepancy. What does he do? He keeps looking. The psalmist keeps looking. He looks back, he looks up front, and then he looks forward. He looks forward to a future because he was counting on the same God who is only true to his word, who does not and cannot break his promises. In verse 8, this is how he looks forward. The psalmist has finished praying directly to God, and now here he switches to the passive voice. Let me, let me hear, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. The psalmist is now talking to himself. He's done talking to God. He's talking to himself, making a wish, as it were. He's wishing that he would hear God say something. God, you've been silent. Say something to me. This is my wish. What exactly is the psalmist wishing here? He's calling back. He's recalling of a story back in time about the Jewish creation narrative. See, as much as the divine drama was about God and Israel, it actually goes back all the way to the beginning when the universe was brought to existence by what? By hearing God's speech, divine speech. God spoke the word, suddenly distinct things other than God appeared, and then there was difference. There was diversity. And then God spoke again and called difference into order, called diversity into unity. God kept all of that in order and unity, and by his word, and he called that harmony. There was harmony. This is what's meant by the Hebrew word peace, shalom. It's harmony. This is the theme now of our fourth Sunday in Advent. Creation was that original event of God speaking his word of peace and harmonizing everything, the chaos, the darkness, the confusion, the randomness of everything. Set it aright. Let there be harmony. Now this creative event would be repeated many more times in the drama, not exactly the same way, but as God speaking his word of peace to the spiritual darkness, to the moral confusion, to the moral chaos of people through priests, through prophets, through psalmists, through kings. Through these people, as imperfect as they were, God spoke peace. God spoke harmony to quell people's madness, to hush their clamor for sin. Get rid of your idols. Turn from evil. Repent and return. Choose life. Why are you choosing to die in your sins. God kept speaking to them, calling them to order, calling them to unity, but they would not. And since they lusted for idols of empire, God let them go. Just deliver them over to them. That's what you want. Have what you want. You shall be sent to empire. You shall be sent to the nations. You love their God so much. Have at them. This is why at the end of verse 8, the psalmist makes that connection. God's speaking peace and repentance from folly. God will speak peace to his people, but let them not turn back to folly. 
The choice between wisdom and folly has everything to do with the land. We're back to the land here. In verse 9, Surely God's salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Again, this is covenant language. The moral and spiritual behavior of people, they, they have lasting and real impact, not only on people's lives, but also in creation, in the land, in rivers, in mountains, in fields, in grasses. So we know this in a general sense, right? You don't have to be religious or be Christian to know this. When we waste food and water and natural resources so much, we not only create pollution, but we create some kind of inequality between those who have and those who don't. And what? What happens? The glory of the land is diminished. If, if in our business practice we cater to shareholders only and maximize profits, we can become extractive and exploitative at the cost of habitats and human lives. And what? What happens? The glory of the land is diminished. Third example, if we as individuals, we insist on our own happiness, our friendships won't last. Marriages will dissolve and families will break apart. And what happens? The glory of the land is diminished. Now these are generalizations, but you get the picture. The glory of the land diminishes as people like us continue living in moral foolishness, in moral chaos, apart from the fear of God. Will you choose wisdom or will you choose folly? That has everything to do with our homes and in our own land. But here's the point. <clears throat> if you've read the Bible, you know that time and time again, this drama between God and Israel, that looks like a lost cause. This is vicious cycle. God's people, they persist in folly, descending into chaos, and then God comes to them, he speaks to them, peace, peace, let me forgive you, let me rescue, let me re restore you into the land. But they do it all over again. And this divine drama is really it's about us. It's about me. It's about you. This is not just about Israel. This is about all of us. Because time and time again, we ourselves play around with moral folly, with moral stupidity, whether we know it or not. And we all we see all sorts of ways how people are harmed and how society descends into chaos in the land. People suffer. We suffer. The land suffers. The next generation suffers. So that, that's, that's what's happening right now in front of us. But what do we do? What can we do about this? Is there anything that we can do? Just as the psalmist has done, we are invited to look forward. We look behind us. We look what's in front of us. Let's keep looking forward. We look ahead to a future promise. In verse 10, the psalmist is lingering now in the land, but this time is not the land of Israel this is an, in, an imagining, it's an envisioning, a dreaming of a future world that almost resembles the land of Eden. It's like the primordial land when things were so harmonized from the start of creation. The psalmist here is describing the vision as though it was unfolding in front of him in real time. He talks in the active present tense, you'll notice that. And then he sees the world being perfected, blossoming before his eyes. He could see the petals, he could smell it. See the seeds being dispersed. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. It's happening in front of him. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness is springing up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. This is the land of Eden restored. 
paradise regained, all of creation being harmonized. In this vision, the peace of God, they, they bring forward, they bring back together these long-lost companions that are rarely ever seen together. Love, faithfulness, righteousness, justice, mercy, and peace. And you see them all in an embrace, in a huddle. They're together once again, at the same time, at the same place. Have each of us ever seen anything like this in the past week, in the past century? Can we describe anything like that perfectly, all together at the same place, at the same time? This is what the psalmist saw, and he ends the psalm with a sigh of hope. That God will again restore his people's fortunes, the land producing its yield, as righteousness trail blazes ahead of God to mark the way of his coming. Hundreds of years later, when this psalm was written, the same divine speech of God, God's word of peace, takes on human form, named Jesus Christ, and he trailblazes ahead for the new creation's coming. And he takes with him to the cross all our folly, our moral stupidity, the just penalty of our sins. And then he dies outside of Jerusalem, exiled from the temple. And he was hung between land and sky as the brutal bridge that is reconciling earth and heaven for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all. And then this same Jesus appears alive again to his disciples. And what does he say? What was the first thing that the resurrected Jesus said to his fearful and hiding disciples? Shalom, peace, harmony, peace be with you. Peace, I'm leaving with you. My peace I give to you. He left us now his peace, not as just mere sentiment, but peace that is a person. Peace that is a person, a powerful, working, alive person, the Holy Spirit, given to our bodies as we yet dwell right now in this in-between time. We are in the land, in creation that is unturned, undone. Thorns and thistles, right? Stolen and spoiled, soaked in blood and byproducts. Creation yet to be redeemed, creation yet to be restored. We're in this land, but we've been given the peace. For what? To work out and live out and speak out the good news of God's peace right now. That responsibility, yes, is daunting. But the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, dwelling in our hearts and minds in the Holy Spirit, is also working now to restore us first as people who more and more reflect the image of Jesus in this world. Forgiveness isn't enough. It's a great thing. Oh, it's so delightful to have your sins forgiven. But we also need restoration. The gap needs to be filled up. The old wound needs to be wiped away. No sign of injury. Only God can do that. And in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness and restoration. In Him, we have both. So let's work out and live out and speak out God's word of peace in the land, in this land, in our homes, in our neighborhood, in that specific 
plot of earth that we are stewarding in our use of resources, in our gospeling and evangelizing this word of peace to people who are yet to be reconciled to God. To the end that earth and heaven become one in Jesus, creation in complete and lasting harmony, then what would happen? Glory shall yet again dwell in our land. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.